I'm, I'm certain you've walked into a room before and feel the immediate sense of, I don't belong, or did anyone know that I was going to arrive? And I, I, I hope that you've walked into a room and everyone knew your name, everyone expected you to be at the party, everyone welcomed you there. Uh, it, it was amazing when Brooke and I, not to, not to bash an entire state, but there, there's this unique culture in New Mexico when we lived there for a couple of years. I think in, in a missions context, you would call it a colder culture where they're just very fine with you going to a Super Bowl party, opening up the door on your own, making yourself at home in their house, not really welcoming you. They're just happy for you to be there, but they won't really like usher you in and make you feel included, which is truly my nightmare. Uh, you you want to go over to someone's house and you want them to like, open the door for you or say, you know, here's the couch or here's some food or, you know, here's other things. You want to be welcomed. Uh, it is amazing. So to transition now to the scripture, it is amazing uh, the amount of joy that people had for the person of Jesus when he arrived into Jerusalem. Uh, we symbolically play it out with adorable children waving branches around as, as a sign, as a prophetic sign of, of who is really appearing. And what's amazing is is it wasn't always this way when Jesus would show up to places, and it certainly wouldn't always be this way when Jesus would reappear in people's lives, even that same week. If you're not used to the church or Christianity at all, this Sunday begins a a period of time called the Passion Week, where this is, in many ways, a a climax of uh, Jesus' earthly ministry, where all of these things all start happening at once. So the biographies, which are not really biographies, the Gospels that we have of Jesus, the the four Gospels in maybe your copy of the Bible, uh, talk about the last week more than any other period of time in Jesus' life. So typically around 25 to 30% of those Gospels are just about one jam-packed week. And so it's encouraging when you read the Bible and Jesus shows up and everyone's pumped about it, but it won't always be the case. In the week of the Passion, the week of our Lord Jesus Christ going into Jerusalem, what's so staggering for those who have read the rest of the testimony, he was anticipated and overjoyed uh, in their announcement of, of him coming, but he would knowingly actually be walking slowly, day by day, to his own death. Jesus very deliberately begins to make his way into the city of Jerusalem, being someone that they They had no idea fully of who he was. So I want you to note that all of Jesus' actions in your scriptures, in your copy of the word, as being very deliberate in his life. Jesus had been deliberate in everything. He was always emphatic about what he did. He always demonstrated to the disciples his own carefulness that he was exactly who the scripture said he was, and he was who he said he was, and he was who God on high said he was. So he wasn't like some of us, maybe when we venture out to go buy food at Walmart and then pretty soon we're just in some random aisle and we're like, how did I get here? And do I need a matchbox car? I don't know. He wasn't aimlessly wandering around and then, oh, decided that his time was right and he needed to die. No, he, every moment, every ounce of energy, every millisecond of his life was purposeful. He was in charge. Each of his actions were significant, but now more than ever, there are indications that every single action that he takes during his final week before his death is chocked full of significance for the disciples. And friend, for you today, this is something that you hold on to and read and study about and try to dissect as much as you can because it means so much. Because Jesus knows that the time appointed from before the foundation of the world has arrived in this moment. 
he's once again telling us the significance of his suffering and his death even before it happens. Now, I want you to see three things from the text today, and that'll serve as the outline of, of my sermon to you. In the first three verses, I hope that you will see Jesus focus our attention on his personhood and his actions, his person and his work. In the fourth and fifth verses, I want you to see that Jesus reminds us that who he is and what he is deeply rooted in doing through a prophecy of God, even in the scriptures of the Old Testament. And then in the the last couple of verses, verses 6 through 11, he'll force upon us a question, a question that asks, who am I? And who is this? So I'd like to see those three things. But first, I want you to see and understand that, that he knew the very reason for his arrival. He wasn't stumbling in in this. In the first three verses of this text, you'll see Jesus give a kingly command. And it seems so small. It's a kingly command. He makes a command. He sends his disciples on an errand that only a king could send them out on. And in fact, in the process of giving that command, he also gives them a prediction as to what is going to happen when they carry out his own words. And as you hear from this passage, I think you'll learn that we need to live our lives in light of of this very action of Christ, the pronouncement of not only go and do, but the very understanding that he knew exactly what they would be involved in. The day is Sunday, and Jesus and his disciples are making their way into Jerusalem, where, frankly, many other travelers would have been. So it's not like you stumbling in early to Disney World, and you're like, wow, we're the only ones here. No, he was arriving into town, and a ton of people would be arriving into town because it's Passover time. And it seems like half of Jerusalem is in Jerusalem these days, and the city will swell with people coming for Passover. So the, the word, and part of this is intentional, where the word of of this event, the actual notoriety of Jesus' actions, oh, it'll, it'll spread like a wildfire. And so this is the triumphal entry of Jesus, and that's what this passage record, records. It's, it's done by Jesus for some very specific purposes. He has, he has in his design at least four things, I think, that he wants to do by entering into Jerusalem. But, but of all those things, the, the focus here on, is on this. If you want one of those four things, shoot me an email later. But there are four particular things. But the focus of those four things are this. Jesus' earthly ministry is drawing quickly to a close, and he no longer is seeking obscurity and secrecy. So it's happening very quickly, and unlike times in the past, he now wants everyone to know it. Maybe you've read the Gospels and have, have been um, confused, maybe, or surprised that Jesus would do something truly miraculous. And then he would tell that person, now go away and don't tell anyone. If I mow the yard well, I tell Brooke to tell her parents and her brother, tell everyone about what I just did. But Jesus was keeping people in a way at bay, but now he's drawing everyone's attention in. I want you to remember uh, the reason for this, that he's drawing everyone's attention to himself, is because he is now putting on display the fullness of his personhood in the climax of his very work. Why? Well, because he wants it to be widely known. He wants people to see these two things happening. He is who he is, and he will do what he's doing for the climax of all history. And part of that is because he wants people to be able to recount it, like you and I might today. Or maybe you and your own family have certain events set up in the next couple of days, or maybe even on a Sunday morning, where you will, in many ways, remind yourselves or rehearse in some form that Jesus arrived in the city with branches waving to die. You remember the years later in this when Paul would be testifying before the Roman authorities. He'll lean on 
these very words of, you know these events. They were not done in the dark. So Jesus wants this to be on display. Jesus wants just about everybody to have an account, some sort of account about the weeks that are, the week that's unfolding. J.C. Ryle, the late bishop in England, says it this way, before the great sacrifice for the sin of the world was put up, it was right that every eye should be fixed on the victim. So Jesus focuses our eyes on himself and his work, but notice that Jesus sends his two disciples into a village, and he tells them that they will find there a donkey on which he would then ride. He provides them with an answer to the inquiry of those to whom this donkey belonged. He tells them that on giving that answer, the donkey will then be given over and sent to him. And it all happens exactly as he foretells. And I think one of the things that we can extrapolate from this, I've used that word twice now today, and I've never used that word. One of the things that we can pull down from this and understand as we just look at this passage like a diamond where it just becomes so crystal clear is is that the one who sent these guys out knows everything. Don't forget that. He's a triumphal entry, but he knows everything. There are no secrets with him, alone or in company, by night or by day, Christian, in private or in public. He is acquainted with all of your ways. There is nothing that you go through that he doesn't know about. There's nothing that you think about that he doesn't understand or know. Now, to the Christian, it's very clear how comforting of a of a message this subtle call out for a donkey is. Man, if he knows that, that's someone I can trust in because I can, I can place all of who I am in the knowledge of his person and his care. But friends, if you're not a Christian, I just want to say that the tension there is obvious. This is a very haunting thing. It's a very haunting thing, even in this triumphant palm branches waving everywhere. Unbeliever, he knows you. He knows you. And in this passage, he'll call out, what do you know about him? We should do nothing we would like without Christ seeing it. And we should say nothing we would not like Christ to hear. We should seek to live and move and have our being under a continual recollection of Christ's presence. Nature itself teaches us to keep our tongue in check and even our demeanor and behavior. Watch out for those things because people are watching But in this true, full sense, it is the Lord Jesus who has perfect knowledge of our ways. And this ought to have the same effect on us as we go about our lives. Remember what he is doing, what he knows. Friend, yet he still goes. He knows you, but he still goes to his very cross to be that very death for you. A second thing I think this points out is not only does Jesus know everything that is happening here, but in this first couple of verses, you think, that, that's the lesson from a donkey? Well, in part, yes. He knows everything. But a second thing we see in the next couple of verses is that his very word knows everything about him too, which is an interesting turn of phrase. The very Bible knows exactly who Jesus is as he's playing it out in the Gospels. It's almost like prophetic words are becoming true in their very midst. It's not almost like it is that. A second thing I want you to see from this passage, verses 4 and 5, not only do we have this kingly command and prediction in the first three verses, but we also have a fulfillment of the Scriptures in total in this action of taking a donkey in Christ, riding that donkey into Jerusalem. We see a fulfillment of the Scriptures, and we have note again and again that the Scripture proves Jesus' claims and reveals His very person and work. So let me say this a little bit differently. Scripture not only proves Jesus' claims, but it also reveals who he is and what he does. 
And it's in that way that we submit ourselves to, to his word and scripture. Oftentimes, you and I know people, maybe we often, time to time, we, we might pit those two against each other. You know, Jesus' actions against God's word. One of them seems nice, uh, a person who might be against the Christian faith would say, Jesus is a good guy. But man, God's word seems to be really harsh and divisive and mean and grumpy. And No, first of all, no, it's not. All of this is for your good. I was, I was at a preaching workshop um, last week in Fayetteville where 40 preachers from the area get together and we aim to sharpen one another's tools. And we were in the book of, I don't know where this illustration is going, but I hope it gets there really well. Uh, we're, we're studying the book of Exodus and talking about how we would preach it and fine, uh, fine-tune those tools. And one of the guys had the passage of the Ten Commandments, where we read the Ten Commandments out loud, and then we talked about it and dissected it. And one other guy piped in, man, can you, can you imagine life without God's law? And you're like, well, no, but as a Christian, of course I don't, I can't imagine God's, my life without God's law. But he's like, no, no, no. Like, a law was given, don't murder. Can you imagine life without that? And you're like, oh, it's such a great devotional moment. All of us are like, wow, it's a really deep thought, and we've known this forever. Like, don't murder people. And here it is, just another reminder of how good God's word is. And Jesus is putting God's good word on full display. It's almost as if he's saying, look, look what's behind me, and look what is coming in front of you. Now, hold on to that idea. Let's look at this together here in verses 4 and 5. Matthew tells us that a, what's called a messianic prophecy, Jesus fulfilled by the very action of what he's doing in this passage. By riding into Jerusalem on this donkey, he is actually fulfilling what was talked about by God's word in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. You can mark it down, you can turn to it if you want, but that passage testifies that at one point there will be a Messiah who will come in. And that passage provides evidence and proof that Jesus, in, in this small way, is the very Messiah who the Lord has been encouraging his people to look for for a long time. And it also reveals some of the unexpected qualities about this Messiah. One of the things it says is, in Zechariah, it says that you will say to the daughter of Zion, in verse 5, behold, your king is coming. And the first thing that is stressed is that he is the people's king. The first thing that this prophecy does that Jesus is fulfilling is that he is, he is the people's king, whether they knew it or not, and evidence would show that they didn't really know it, that they're waving something that looks majestic and they don't know the fullness of his kingship. He doesn't come as a conquering tyrant from abroad. He comes as the people's king. He comes to them. He comes for them, for their benefit. And even the picture of him riding on a donkey stresses this. He doesn't come in on a warrior steed to conquer over them. He comes as their king, picture-wise, who is one for them, for their benefit. Another thing to notice just about this is that the, the Zechariah would say that he comes as one who's gentle. He comes in gentleness and peace and graciousness, not, not in war or in judgment. He comes to be a blessing to them, not to oppress them. It's not like a king of their past where, oh, it's great that he's in power, but this means that we all have to get to work in some form of slavery. He actually comes to free them from this, not to enslave them. And so, again, the picture of him coming on a donkey as opposed to a war horse stresses the reality of who he is. Earlier, he had said that he was gentle and lowly. It's amazing. Some of you know this, but the only time that Jesus' heart is described are with the words gentle and lowly. And so here is another picture of this warrior king coming in gentle for his people. He's mounted on a donkey, even 
on a small one. And in other words, he comes as a king, but one with humility. He comes on a humble beast of burden, riding on a borrowed man's colt. I just hope you catch the picture that this is the Lord God of the universe, so don't take that away from him. But the one who sits the right hand of God the Father, don't take that away from him, riding into Jerusalem on a beast that he didn't own with a bridle and a saddle that he didn't have, only garments spread over the back of this beast. It's a, it's a picture of humility. And as we, as we look at the Scriptures, we not only gain confidence in who Christ is through this by seeing a fulfillment of the prophecies, it gives us like, grabbing on, like all of us, whenever we're in some kind of, I don't know, I don't know what I'm about to say, but whenever we grab onto something so that we don't like fall over, like every time I'm riding in a car with someone I kind of don't trust, there are not enough seatbelts I can put on, and I'm holding like this the entire time. This gives us confidence that we can hold on to what this is true in the scene of this fulfillment of this prophecy, but also it might break down some of our presumptions about who Christ is and to where those presumptions that we had need to be shaped by the Word. Friend, if you're here and you don't know Christ or you don't know much about Christ, I would just encourage you to, to have your view of Jesus to be completely shaped and fashioned by exclusively the Word of God. Um, I, I like, probably sadly, to, to look at Instagram, and one of these new accounts is uh, passing uh, pictures uh, f- to a friend this past week, because now uh, artificial intelligence is actually creating some of these scenes from this to kind of show on full display, you know, the spreading of the... And it just looks so magnificent. It looks so cool. They're using all these artificial intelligent codes to, to paint a picture for us of who Jesus is. But friend, you don't need that. And in fact, I would encourage you to, I would encourage myself to just make ourselves masters of what the book says about Christ. He is powerful. He will come on a war horse one day. But when he first appears to the people in Jerusalem, he rides on a donkey. As if to say, I'm coming for the weak and those who need me. But he's coming. I wonder if you've talked with someone and said, uh, you know, my God wouldn't do such and such. Uh, you know, you, you sort of look down at the scripture and you say, well, <laughs> funny, uh, it actually says exactly what he did. And that's the confidence that we can have. Your, your God must not be the same God of the Bible. We might review back to them. They might say, well, I don't like God because of this. I had a friend text me last night. What do you say to someone who, who has a problem with Jesus? And you just go, man, either, either, they, either they're in an act of rebellion of which you call them back to the water through repentance. Or they just have an obscure view of who Jesus is, of which you bring them the truth, not, not from your wisdom or knowledge, but knowledge from on high given to us in the Word. And you might see that Matthew does this again and again, a, a glimpse of who Jesus is. He knows everything. He's fulfilling all that needs to be done. But in an amazing way, in a third way, we see from the passage that not only does he know himself, not only does the Word know who He is, you can imagine the, the angels like warming up and just getting ready in heaven for this, um, this main event, but, but I think this text finally says that soon everyone here in this town, in this place, they'll all know who He is too. You see this in verses 6 through 11, Jesus in His kingliness and in His lowliness and His humbleness and his, in His triumphant state, Jesus, by coming into Jerusalem this way is demanding now a response. I know who I am. People back knew who I was. Now who do you say that I am? In verses 4 and 5, he's 
drawing attention to the person and the work by rooting his claim in the fulfillment of Scripture. He's saying, not only am I the king, but I'm fulfilling all the kingly actions that were said about me. And he's saying, I'm not satisfied with you saying, okay, that's great. You seem important. Everyone says you're important. You you imagine we can passively go by. I'd imagine if the king of Spain arrived on your street, you might go, wow, this is a pretty impressive car, king of Spain. I don't know about you, but as an American citizen, I would just be like, so what? Not the king of me? I don't care about you at all. Ooh, wow, fancy car. Means nothing to me. Friends, I, I feel like that's how so many of us act passively towards the king in the scriptures. We, we're so almost familiar with the circumstances that we're not actively and in a stunning way being amazed at the glory that's being presented to us. Far too often we seem satisfied with saying, okay, that seems nice, what's next? And I think what this passage does is it forces you to take a position on Christ one way or the other. He's demanding a response from the people in Jerusalem, and of course he's demanding a response from anyone who would read this passage, meaning you and I today. You need to go home and have a response from this passage. Maybe if you came with someone, put them them on their heels and say, who do you say that Jesus is according to this passage? Kids, a great opportunity for you to ask your parents, who do you say Jesus is? Let them understand. Parents, you too. We had a a way of going to, we lived 20 minutes from our church growing up, and so um, my dad always paid attention, and he wanted us to pay attention, and so we had this activity on the way home from church after CC's on the way home from church where 10 questions had to be asked. So 10 questions from the sermon had to be asked on the way home. And the kids, my sister and I, we had the opportunity to to start out the questions. So if we got to 10 questions, the the pain is satisfied. You ask mom and dad 10 questions about the sermon, great. But if you only get three or four, oh man, that means means mom and dad is about to ask you questions. And you you know they listened. And we did not want to be a fool in this situation. So we would try to find what was the title of the sermon. That's not what we're talking about, but you get these. And, and I, I think this is what really happens with this text of Scripture. It demands a question to be answered by you. Who do you say that Christ is? When he enters the city, the crowd joins in. They congregate. And they begin singing to him in terms of words from Psalm 118. Now, Psalm 118 is not only one of the psalms of ascent, which the travelers sang as they would go to Jerusalem on a regular basis. It's also a messianic psalm, meaning amazingly, then it was talking about the one who would come later. It's a messianic psalm, and it's one of the six psalms most frequently quoted in the New Testament and applied to Jesus. So this is a big deal that these people are singing about from Psalm 118 to Christ. Now the crowds, they're initially enthusiastic. They're all joining together and singing a very popular and positive thing about Jesus. Maybe you would Maybe you would imagine us singing, you know, Just As I Am or Amazing Grace. We all know the words. But it would be people within a couple of days who would no longer be singing Psalm 118, but they'd be shouting, Crucify Him. Crucify Him. And yet, even in that knowledge, it was Jesus who came into the city, knowing everything that was about to happen to Him. Yes, He is entering triumphantly, ironically, on His way to die for the very people who were wanting to kill Him. Among other things, this ought to remind us of is that living a life according to the poles is not a very bright thing to do. Living a life according to the world is not a very safe way to live. One theologian says this is proof of the utter folly of thinking more about the praise of man than about the praise of God. 
Jesus knew exactly what was going on with these crowds, and he was not allowing himself to be drawn along by them. He was not conducting his, but he was conducting his father's business. And there were some basic responses in this crowd to Jesus. Two of them are very explicit in the passage. Some people were very positive about Jesus, but they were superficial in their knowledge in the support. The crowds, the crowds were very positive about Christ. You see this, you know this. They were excited, but they were superficial in their knowledge about him and in their support of him. How do we know that? Well, when they asked, when they're asked later on, who is he? Their answer would be, well, he's the prophet of Nazareth. He's Jesus. And and they meant that he was a prophet promised by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, but clearly their support would melt. They, They saw him as a person, but they weren't following him in his work. It was superficial. They would give him a name, but his title meant nothing to them. And it's important for us to understand the lesson that we learn from this. It's not enough to think positively about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not enough just to think positively about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, when we get to the last days, is not going to say, did you have positive thoughts about me? Did you think, did you think well of me? Amongst all the other things in life, did you think maybe even always the best? That's not what he's going to ask. The question is, have you embraced him as the Son of God, the Savior of sinners? Have you yourself embraced him, summoned him to your heart, you could say? Have we acknowledged who he claims to be more than that? Have have we personally admitted that not only is who he is, but also have we admitted that we are who we are? The Bible is very clear. Friend, if you're not a believer, the Bible actually has a deafening rebuke on you where it says that you are the worst of what you could ever call anyone, you're a sinner. You're separated from a holy God. Not by his doing, not by anyone around you's doing, but just by you. You yourself, actively, passively, you separated yourself from the Lord. And have you acknowledged that? It's there that Jesus says, call out to him and embrace him. Have you personally admitted that you're a sinner in need of grace, and have you trusted in him alone for salvation as he's offered that in the gospel? Friends, when when you might ask who Jesus is and you seek an answer, does it sound anything like that? Positive thoughts about Jesus are nice. They'll get you nowhere in the last day. And that's what we learn from these crowds. You you see, you might think, well, you know the crowds, at least they were better than the Pharisees. (laughs) At least they were cheering for something. But in the end, if, if all this crowd believed about Jesus is this, they too will be entrusted to partition with all those who mocked and scourged and crucified the Lord on his last days before his burial. They refused to believe in who he was. They refused to follow him in his footsteps. We've got to think more of the positive thoughts about the Lord Jesus. We must embrace him as our Savior and trust in him as our Lord alone for salvation as he has offered himself to us. That's the first response of the crowd. The second response of the crowd uh, comes from Jerusalem itself, the people of the city. And what's that response? That response is just straight-up ignorance. What's their question in verse 10? Who is this? Jesus had been in Jerusalem before, and yet the people are saying, who's this? Their ignorance. There's superficiality in this. Another response, third, we we know that there were Pharisees amongst these multitudes. Their response was, of course, devious, deliberate, opposition to Christ. Now, it's it's tempting for us to think, well, you know, at the end, uh, they're at least in the room. They're at least around. How many, how many times do we think of, if we could just get this person like to church in a sermon, 
sing a really good song, like one where everyone harmonizes and it's beautiful, if we could just get them kind of around, then almost like, what, what's the scientific word? Osmosis, it'll just bleed off into them. Right, some of you, I've said this before, some of you, me too, slept with a geometry book underneath our pillow, hoping it would just seep up into us. Friends, these haters of the Lord were looking at him. He was right there. He would have been looking at them. The superficial knowledge of Christ, positive view of Christ, ignorance of Christ, opposition to Christ, all those will bring condemnation. And so we must deal with Jesus as he is. Indifference to Jesus is defiance. Superficiality about Jesus is spiritually very dangerous. Opposition to Jesus is fruitless. That's what the text demands out of us, is to do what people here were not doing, but to bow before the king, give everything over to him, hold nothing else in our hands. That's the response, the saving response that we can have towards Christ Jesus, who comes in triumphantly on his own, who would die in the place of sinners. We bow the knee. We acknowledge him to be the king. We acknowledge him to be our king and all that he is. We acknowledge him to be the Lord, our Lord, and all that he is. We acknowledge him to be the Savior, our Savior, because of his very work and his very person. We acknowledge that in him alone we can find salvation. That's the only saving response to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're ignorant about Jesus, we're, if we're apathetic about him, if we're, if we're in the same fix as those who are opposed to him because... Ah, he is the king. He is not the king if he is not your king because he will not live as the king forever because he'll come and judge as your king whether you want it or not. If we're ignorant about who he is, we're in a dangerous place. So friends, who do you say that Jesus is? Only you can answer that. Someone may ask you, but only you can answer it from your heart. You can rattle off a Bible answer, but is it from your heart? There's only one saving response to who this triumphal entry person is. If you think well of Jesus, but not have embraced him as your savior on the last day, there will be a time that the Bible talks about where the king will arrive. And he won't be on a donkey. And people won't be waving palm branches. He'll talk about being on this triumphant, apocalyptic, amazing looking horse and they'll have on a side a sword. One group he'll defend and one group he'll end. So friends, who do you say that he is? This man who has entered this room. He says, welcome. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that you have given us in Christ and the, in the instrument of his action that you've given us through your word. We thank you that it is you who we can come to. It is you who we can come to in our own sin, in our own folly, knowing that you forgive us in his very personhood, in the act of this very week. I pray these things in praise and in thanks of your great name. Amen.